The following message is a presentation of Valley Metro Church, a community of believers dedicated to knowing God and making Him known. But we are so glad you're here with us this morning, and uh, I believe we have a message that's going to bless you this morning. It's something that God really put on my heart. Uh, to share with you today, um, and it's going to be in Acts chapter 8 if you want to turn there. We're going to get there in a minute. We're going to set this up a little bit, but um, you know, when it, comes to, when it comes to the faith, the Christian faith, and when it comes to, to Jesus, um, you know, there's, there's some people have roadblocks. They've got barriers when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to faith and expressions of faith and stepping into matters of faith, some have different levels of reluctance. Some, uh, it's just they've never heard before. They simply never heard the gospel or resonated with the truth of it yet. That's, that's one group of people. There's some um, that maybe some of their um, ideas of science get in the way with the Bible, and some need an explanation uh, on the Bible and the substance and creation. So some have the scientific kind of not so sure yet, and, and so they have that boundary, that block, but, but many people, it seems like many people are more in the camp where they just simply need to see love. When they see the love of God, everyone can, how many can recognize love? We all know love when we see it. We all know love when we see it. And when we see love and we see the love of God moving through people, we say that's real, that's authentic, that is legitimate. Also, when we see the power of God in any kind of way, if you've ever been prayed for and things have radically changed in a way that only God could have done, you've experienced the power of God and you go, wow, that could only be God. So two really clear factors that determine, uh, help people determine matters of faith to see it for what it really is, to see Jesus for who it really is, is power and love. Everyone say power and love. When you see it, you can't deny it. There's no mistake in power and love. And when Jesus came on the scene, he came on the scene with a profound level of power and love. It was just so obvious. He's taking a knee and talking to people, engaging, and the Pharisees are like, what is he doing with them? Isn't he going to get dirty? Why isn't he worried about the lepers? And, and, and so Jesus was engaging and loving everybody, and he was with the common people, and the religious elite had no category for this. His love was evident. His power was evident, and all the people around him saw that and embraced that. There were thousands on a hillside going, surely he's telling the truth. Look at the power and love in his life. He's clearly sent by God. We don't know if he's the Messiah, the prophet. We're learning as we listen to him, but we know he's from God because of his power and his love. So this is what's going on, and Jesus was so clear on this power and love theme um, that he actually delegated, delegated power to his people. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about power to the people because we're going to see that God's idea, his heart, was to give, in fact, power to the people, especially in this area of power and, and love. So Jesus, who's walking with this power and this profound authority that is obvious to the people, uh, he turns around, we see in Scripture, and he picks not only the 12 disciples, but he picks 70 he picks a group of 70, and he gets them together, and they're following, they're learning from him, and he turns around and empowers them. 70, that's a lot of people. And he says, now you guys have seen me do it. I want you to also go and do as you've seen me do. So these 70 people, and this is not at the end of the gospel, this is kind of in the middle of the gospel, 70 people go out in the 
power and love, the authority that's been granted by God, and they too are going out and being world changers. Everyone in the community that they go to is saying, wow, those people have power and love. It's undeniable. We can't deny the, the fact that these people have God's power and God's love in their life. It's undeniable. And all 70 come back and said to Jesus, you wouldn't believe the stuff that happened. It was awesome. And they all came back explaining what this expression of power and love that God gave them, what it looked like when they went out there to share it. It's really, really amazing. And so um, in scripture, uh, we see that there's other groups of people that are completely opposed to this power and love. And the reason they're opposed to this power is they said, we didn't give it to you, so how can you function in this authority? They had a fundamental problem and they were the antagonists of Jesus all the way through the gospel message. So for three years, we see this group of antagonists or different subsets of people that were constantly, relentlessly opposing Jesus all the way through. And so much of it comes up to this struggle, uh, as it says in Mark 11, uh, by what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? He's loving on people, the power of God, people are getting healed, people are being loved. The crowds know that. But the religious elite with their arms crossed and a sneer say, by what authority? Because we are the authority and we didn't give it to you. So there's this profound tension between power, the way it's seen by humanity, and the way it's seen through the realm of God. Does that make sense? It's a big fundamental difference, and we need to understand that today because I think God wants you to not only understand it better, but to personalize it. For some of you, this may be review. Some of you, it's time to go back and visit the reality of this. Uh, some of you, this may be completely new. Um, but the point of the matter is, Jesus wants to endow authority, the antagonists, and you've heard of them in scripture, they come by different names, uh, and I never put an exhaustive list of them today, together until this study, but they come up in these names, uh, the teachers, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the Sanhedrin, all representing antagonists of Jesus with the same theme and motive coming up again and again in scripture. By what authority? We didn't give it to you. We are the authority and we didn't give it to you. You didn't come up through our schools. We didn't sanction you. We didn't send you out. Why are you doing what you are doing? There's this intense tension uh, between this religious elite and the way God wants to do things with power and love through his people. There's a tension. Um, and I want to encourage you to take some notes down today because you will understand more through the realm of God, the economy of God, the, uh, the view of God, through the kingdom of God, what it means for God to impart power to the people. And when I say power to the people, I'm talking about Christ followers. If you're following Christ, you would qualify for this realm. And the first point is this, um, is that power to the people is God's idea. It's God's idea. How many of you heard John Lennon come out with a song in the 60s? Power to the people. Anybody hear that? That's old school. Okay. Um, but the point is, this was God's idea long before that. God's idea was power to the people. It was his idea originally. And we're going to see what it looks like and how it rolls out. But power to the people was God's idea. And the religious elites have always struggled with it. One of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible, we don't have to turn there, but it's in Acts 5.13. There's this picture where Peter and John are empowered by Jesus. Jesus is empowering many, many people. And he empowers them. 
and they're loving people and praying for people, and the power and love is obvious, and things are changing. And all of a sudden, this guy gets healed. And they drag Peter and John be between this religious group, the Sanhedrin, and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Because it bothers them. It bothers them that there's power and love, there's authority out there, and they didn't sanction it. Religious elite has a fundamental problem with this view entirely. And Peter and John come, and they get up there boldly before all these like highly educated upper echelon of the religious spiritual elite. And they get in front of them and they say, brothers and sisters, let me tell you what's going on. And they get up there and tell this story. And the religious elite are stunned. And, and they reconvene for a second. And they're like, what's up with these guys? They're uneducated. They didn't come up through our schools. They probably didn't finish, you know, 10th grade or something. And they're standing in front of all of us with this profound level of boldness, this this amazing aptitude to speak and articulate these deep truths, and it didn't come from training. Where did it come from? Obvious power in their life. They speak with a profound authority, but they weren't trained or sanctioned or sent out by us. What is it? And they said, there's only one thing that we can determine. There's only one common denominator about these two guys that can speak this way. There's only one. They've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And the guys that were with Jesus, although not sanctioned and trained in this profound, you know, collegiate kind of way that the upper religion, they got up there with this profound ability and boldness and they were stunned because they were with Jesus. So even the religious elite who struggled with the power and authority of regular folks had to equate it to if you're with Jesus and around him long enough, this is what happens to you. This is what should happen to you. This is what should happen to all of us. If we're really walking with Jesus, if we're really in his word, if we're really walking out the kingdom the way he explains the kingdom to be, this evidence will become part of our lives. And people like Peter and John will say, I don't know where they get that from, but take note, they've been with Jesus, amen? How many would like that as a compliment? They've been, oh, I don't know much about them. They've just been with Jesus. I don't know where they went to school or what they learned or how they articulated or where they got their boldness or their courage. I don't know any of that. I just know they've been with Jesus. That is a compliment, and you should want that compliment. Um, a couple of things I want to set up here so that we understand this power being given to you specifically, to me, to you, to all of us, power to the people. It's not power to the religious elite. It's power to the people. Um, and, and, and this is what the Bible sanctions. A couple of scriptures I want to set up our main text in Acts chapter 8 is uh, 1 Peter 2.9. You don't have to turn, but we'll put it on the screen up here. And it says this in, in the scripture. And this is important for you to know about your identity. It says this, but you, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This is saying you, if you are a Christ follower, this is written to the church, the believers, the, the Christ follower. If you are a Christ follower, you are a royal priest. A royal priest indicates a couple things. Royalty means God sees you in a special light. You have royalty because of your association through Jesus. You are viewed as royalty. A lot of us don't feel that way, but scripture says you need to know that. If, you were a son, if, you're, if you're a Christ follower, you are a son and daughter of God, that puts you in a royal realm through the lens of God. I'm not making this up. Scripture says that. 
Through the lens of God, you are considered royal. I don't know if you feel that way, but it's a reality of how God sees you. You are royal, but you're a royal priest. Priest. Now, at first, that's kind of shocking. Depends on how you come, came up. Maybe that meant the person that wore the collar um, and never got married. And, you know, maybe it means something to you when you think of priest. But what it meant in the Bible, uh, even going back to Abraham, Abraham saw the, high, the priest Melchizedek way back in the Old Testament before there was a, a law. And this was somebody who was just engaging God and helping share God with people, trying to help people understand he's the king and he wants a loving relationship with you. And you're kind of connecting people to the lover of their soul. That's essentially what the priesthood was meant uh, to be. And you are a royal priest, scripture says. That means we are the priesthood. And this is a fundamental shift from what we know as priesthood because priesthood has been a sanctioned role and realm of religious elite people and that wasn't us, it was them. Anybody raised in an environment where it was them and not you? The pre okay, the priesthood is them and it's not us for sure because that's what we were told and how we were raised. Scripture is saying something different, excuse me, in 1 Peter, not Hebrews that you are a royal priest, that you are the priesthood, that you represent. This is called the priesthood of all believers. Say priesthood of all believers. Of all it's, believers. it's a doctrine of the Christian faith. It's a principle we believe. We see it in scripture. We have a basis for it. And it's important to know because some people don't know as a believer, priesthood of all believers? No, not me. That's those guys. I believe, but I'm not like a priest. No, all of us are part of a priesthood. We all represent. And he says right here, uh, in fact, this is power to the people where it begins. You are the priesthood. You are ambassadors. You are the, the ones who represent. You are the ones who go public. We are by definition in scripture. And so this is really, really important. So here's our second point this morning. God intentionally restructured the priesthood and said, I am part of it. You are part of it. God intentionally restructured the priesthood. This is the first time it comes up in scripture where through Jesus Christ, there's a fundamental shift. And God says, it's not them. It's not those people up there with a rank and file and a role that have been, it's you, the Christ follower. And this is something Jesus modeled all along. He raised up 12, he sent them out. He raised up 70, sent them out. There's 120 in an upper room on the day of Pentecost and there's 3,000 added that same day. And he keeps on uh, giving power and authority in the lives of people like you and I to be this priesthood. And the world didn't know what to do with this. They never saw this model before. This model never existed. But God established this model of priesthood of all the believers. And he says that you were part of it. That's something you need to own. This is part of your identity. And this is really, really key. Now, the purpose of this power, the purpose is clear. The context in which it says you are a priest also says the purpose for your priesthood. It says in the same passage, um, the reason that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, um, and God's special possession is so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this light. Uh, this is giving you the capacity, this priesthood is giving you a platform, it's giving you license, it's giving you an open door to, to be bold and be able to testify and to be able to speak. Um, this is what it does. It's an open door for you. It's giving you a platform. God's saying, I am sanctioning you. You don't need them to sanction you. I am sanctioning you by definition. As my son and daughter, I see you as my child. I see you as royal. I see you as a priest to the world. 
I give you platform. I've ordained you. I've sanctioned you. I've called you an ambassador. I've got all these uh, facts the way I see you through my lens. I don't know if you see yourself that way, but God would say, that's how I see you. Now, here's the problem. We like that idea that, that that's an honor, God, that you see me that way, but I don't really feel like I have that power to testify. How many ever feel that way? I like the idea, but I don't quite, it's not really my style to get up there and say anything kind of bold. I'm not like a Peter and John kind of guy that if I got in front of all those people, I don't know what I would do. I like the idea, the principle. I'm cool with it, but I don't think I would actually do that. It's not, I, I just kind of, I'm a little too shy for that and I feel like I'm, I'm out of my lane, so to speak. And, and God has an, he has an app for that. Um, he's got an answer for that. Um, but, but before we get there, I just want to tell you, this model of priesthood, quick history crash course here, this model of priesthood existed for 300 long years, almost 400 years in the early church. This model that I'm sharing with you, it existed for the first 350 years of the church, just like what I'm telling you, priesthood of all believers. It's what the Bible said. It's what Jesus modeled. It's what we were told to do. It's what he empowered his people to do. And community after community began to get changed until the whole Roman Empire, which was hostile to Christians, ended up turning around and embracing it. This was because of a priesthood of all believers and God beginning to move through his people and change the world, profound. Then in 312, again, quick crash course, Constantine, the Roman emperor, becomes a believer. That's the way the story's written. And then by 392, just very shortly thereafter, the Roman Empire makes Christianity the official religion of the land. So it goes to, instead of hostility towards the faith, it's a neutrality towards the faith under Constantine into a full embracing in 392. But guess what happened? At this point in time, Rome, the Roman church, began to restructure the priesthood. We had a priesthood sanctioned by Jesus, rolling for 350 years, but this is the point where the priesthood got restructured, and they started to use terms, terms that were government structure terms, government structure terms, and included them in the church. And this is part of the restructure. Uh, terms like cardinals and popes, uh, those weren't religious terms. Those terms aren't in the Bible anywhere. They weren't modeled in the early church. Those names never came up. And, uh, these names came up in Roman government, which got transferred to roles. And we see a restructure of the priesthood. Um, and, and I have a Catholic background, and uh, no disrespect to the Catholic faith. If any of you have expressed your faith through the Catholic faith, that's amazing. But I, I do want to share this, because when I came to faith as a Christian, one of the first things I wanted to do is look at history. And the reason why I did is because I was told certain things here, but now I'm reading this over here and I didn't have a category for it. I'm like, which one is true? Because both of these can't be true. So one of the first things I did is dive into the, some of the early history to go, what is in fact true? Because I need to know. And so this is some important stuff. But according to the National Catholic Reporter, obviously a Catholic publication, it says the truth is that the church has been borrowing government structures from civil society almost, almost from the beginning. Historically, it goes on to say, the church changed its governance structures to match the changes in civil society. That's what the Catholic Church writes about the history of the Catholic Church governance, and that is, that is true. But what I'm telling you, and I want to remind you today, is Jesus already restructured the priesthood. Does that make sense? He restructured the priesthood. And what I'm telling you, in 392, the priesthood got restructured again. Here's the problem. Instead of power to the people, Power was taken away from the people. 
and it was given back to the religious elite again. Do you guys see how that happened? That's exactly what we had in the time of the Pharisees. They were the religious elite, and who gave you this authority, right? This is what, you look at the Bible, you're gonna see it a million times in scripture. Who gave you this authority? It wasn't us. We're the only ones that can sanction things of spiritual matters and faith, and who are you? And so this is going on until Jesus gives power to the people, calls them the priesthood, and the church is modeled that way for 350 years, and then there's a taking away of the priesthood, a consolidation, if you will, only to uh, a religious elite. It's important to, to know because there was a restructuring, sadly, of what Jesus had done. That's the fact, and that hurts to say it, but it is true. And what hurts even more than that is that this massive transference of power, which happened, went on to be a change, instead of power to the people, power to the religious elite, for the next 1,000 years. And in church history, that breaks my heart, I'm sorry. When I see Jesus tell people something, and I see the early church walking it out, for 300 years under persecution and the church spreading like fire, the power and love through the people of God. It's beautiful, it's glorious. And then I see the, the priesthood consolidated and taken back. It stayed that way for a thousand long years. That's a long time in modern history, a thousand long years. And then the Reformation happened and the Reformation began to question some of that stuff. Well, wait a second, the Bible's saying this and this is what we're seeing, and Martin Luther is where it begins. Great movie, Luther, if you get to see the movie, I think it's on Amazon Prime, but Luther is a great movie that deals with this. He's a Catholic priest, and he, uh, he's very intelligent, and so they have him uh, working on some scholarly things for the Catholic Church. But as time's going on, he's like, I'm having a fundamental problem because the Bible is saying these things, but we're beginning to do all these things, and he starts to write down his 95 thesis of here's some things that are just off that need to be changed. And a couple of the, the key things that he, that he left that 95 Thesis with, if you just remember two things, is that he said two things, sola scriptura, which is only the Bible. That means all, all due respect to what everybody is saying, we're gonna stick with this as our authority. Does that make sense? We're going with the Bible as our authority. Regardless of what people say authority is, we're gonna go with scripture. That, that was the number one takeaway of the Reformation. The number two takeaway is sola fida, only by faith, we're coming, at, we have heaven by faith, not by doing a bunch of works or a bunch of sacraments or doing a bunch of whatever I'm told I need to do. No, the Bible says this, so only the word and only by faith. Two profound things that came out of the Reformation. And I bring this up because there started to be a shift again of the priesthood under this model. And, and part of this began with rediscovering the Bible as God's authority. In fact, in fact, and this is, a, this is probably one of the saddest parts one of the saddest parts of Christian history, if you ask me, is that at this point in time, uh, you know, in the 16th century, when they're finally going, hey, this is God's word, and how come people don't have it in their own language? That's a great question, isn't it? Like, you don't even have a scroll. Before the printing press, you didn't even get to have a scroll or two floating around your house. It wouldn't it be cool to have a scroll of Ephesians in your house or something? At least got Corinthians, we'll share, right? We'll do it like a shared library. I mean, nobody had this stuff, why? Because the priesthood was consolidated. And if you wanted to know what it said, you had to come to the priest to know the ways of God. And so when the Reformation happened, one of the first things that happened, one of the first things, because scripture had authority again, they wanted it back in the lives of the people. And in order to put it in the lives of the people, they said, why did they take a translation that was in Latin, uh, that, only, that was in Greek to Latin, and then the Latin, uh, only the, 
religious elite know that because they're educated, so we don't know what it says, and most of the people didn't uh, read Latin during much of this period of time. So the point of the matter is you went to find out and discover. But instead, Reformation says, we're going to put it in your language. And we're putting the Bible in your language, and here you go. And here's the sad part. The very first thing that happened, hold on a second, by what authority are you printing those Bibles? This, to me, is the saddest part of church history. Because translators, translators of the Bible were burned at the stake. Simply trying to put the word of God in, in the life of people. You speak German? Here, it's in German. You speak English? It's in England. English. You, just honest attempt to put scripture in your language. But we're back to the same thing the Pharisees did under what authority are you doing this? We didn't sanction that. And if we didn't sanction it, it's no good. It doesn't stand the nerve of you. This is heretical. Heretical? Yes, heretical. And people are getting burned at the stake. Very sad part of church history, but it's a fact. And it's a struggle between the priesthood is what I'm trying to say. Do you guys see the monumental struggle between the priests? That's what I'm talking about. A monumental struggle of the world's view of the priesthood and God's view of the priesthood. This is the, this is the tension in the priesthood story. Um, but this is what the Bible says. When they understood the, 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 the magnitude of Scripture and that it's God's word and it's for the people and we are the priesthood, and we're going to start learning what the priesthood is all over again because we've forgotten it for a thousand years. And believers are starting to go, oh, that's the priesthood, that's the priesthood. And they're understanding their role, they're understanding their identity, they're understanding the nature of God unhindered through the revelation of Scripture. And one of the profound things they, they learned right here, and we have it for the board up here, is 1 Timothy 2.5, which really rocked the culture of the world at the time too, because the way the priesthood was set up, this scripture completely defied what the current priesthood had set up. And it says this, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. To you and I, we read that and we move on. But listen, this rocked the world. There's how many mediators, church? Whoa, wait. How many mediators? There's only one. There's only one. Who is that mediator? Okay, can I change that? Can you change that? Can anyone change that? That's the point. And guess what? If we can change that, we can change anything. And this is the way the church was for a lot of years. And again, I'm not knocking anybody who has an expression of faith through the, uh, through the Catholic faith because I have family and friends that do. I'm saying, I, I tell my friends that are Catholic, I say, that's great if that's what you, where you find your expression of faith, but you gotta read the word. You gotta read the word. You can't even begin to express a faith when you have no clue what the source of God and his nature and your, <laughs> and, and you, you won't even know who you are until you know who he is, right? And that's why you got to know the word so you understand what's my place in this matrix of God and eternity and life and purpose and all these things. So you got to know that. So I just tell them, hey, if you're Catholic, wonderful, read this. This is not a knock, it's not a bash, but I have to be honest with you with history and the priesthood. The priesthood got hijacked, family. It got hijacked. And Jesus took it away from the Pharisees, gave it to the people. It got taken away from the people for a thousand long years. And the Reformation began to give it back again. And I'm saying that again because it's time for another reformation. It's time for another reformation. And that reformation has 
everything to do with the priesthood. Jesus did what he did, and he still empowers his people today. We're going to see this right now coming up. But the priesthood is your part, and you're a massive part of what God wants to do. And this is the kind of thing that we have to understand. Wow, I really am part of the priesthood. And it did get restructured. And Jesus' intention is to give it back to the people. So this is an enormous one. There's only one mediator. So Acts chapter 8, we're going to look at a, a really cool passage that... Um, talks about and shows us an amazing example of literally uh, the power that God gives his people. We're going to see it on display. We're going to see people looking at the power, observing the power, wondering what the power is. We're going to see who gets the power and what the power looks like on display. And you need to know that because this is for the people of God. It's for the Christ followers, not just for the apostles, for the Christ followers, the believers. And if you get this, you'll have a broader understanding of what this is all about. I do want to set it up. There's two primary words in scripture that are often translated power. Uh, some translations differentiate the type of power. Some translations just say power because they're both a word that refers to power, but they have a, a greater distinction. One is called exousia. Can you guys say that? Exousia. Exousia has to do with authority, authority. A police officer has authority. You know, you and I try going and resting somebody, it might not work very good. Can you imagine trying to pull somebody over? Hey, pull over. You know, they might not, you know, flash on our light. They might not pull over. Police officer turns his light on, they pull over. Why? Because they have certain authority. That's one of the powers scripture is re, uh, bestowing on you and I, authority. And the other one is this word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite and dynamic from. And this has to do with something explosive. This has to do with something of literally God's power, where God uses you and I and something changes that is beyond your capacity and mine. Like when you pray for something and something happens. Whoa, how did that happen? Do you have this crazy like power? No, God does, and he's doing this power through his people. And this is something that's very missing in our society, or sometimes it's abused, or sometimes it's neglected entirely. But I want to talk to you about this, because this authority, power, and this dunamis power, this dynamite power, are two major aspects that you and I need in our lives. And if we do have this in our lives, the way God wants you to have as part of the priesthood, you and I will get up there just like Peter and John in front of people that we don't know and say, let me tell you why. Here is why. Because God is good and he is love. And he sent you and I will be able to do this. And without it, we're going to be like, don't send me out there. I don't want to talk to anybody. It's not my style. It's not my nature. I don't know what to say. I don't want to open up and share anything. That's what we're going to do in our natural selves. And we're going to see with this power and love, this authority and this dunamis, we step right into these things that were non-existent before. And that's why it's a necessity. Listen, it's not an option. This is a necessity in your life and mine especially in the days of this priesthood that I believe God's calling his people to step into. It's nothing new. The early church functioned fully in this priesthood. It's just something that was taken away for a thousand years. And after the Re Reformation, kind of it reinforced again in various aspects. But I'm saying in the times we're living in, guys, it's time to step up and be the priesthood. It's time to be the royal sons and daughters of God that walk in these things. But don't do it alone. Do it with the power and authority granted to you, otherwise we're going to be, I don't know, it's not my style, I kind of don't feel like doing that, and God knows you and I feel that way, he knows we feel that way, and that's why he even told the Christ followers, the, 
the, the, the church, Jesus, when he, when he ascended into heaven, he said, guys, don't even try to go out and share your faith yet. Wait until you're filled with this power. Why? Because I know you're well-intended and I know you love me, but you don't have the capacity yet. And I, want, I know you love me and you have heaven and you're saved and that's beautiful, but just wait because you need this power because what you're about to encounter, you're gonna need power for the encounter, right? You're gonna need the power for the encounter and that's something God gives his people. We're gonna look at this today because it's power to the people, which has been God's idea from the beginning, power to the people. Um, so here's, here's, uh, here's the first thing, uh, third, third point this morning before we read this passage is this. God offers, God offers me his authority power as well as his dynamic power, both. His authority power as well as his dynamic power. That's the dunamis power. That's actually God doing something powerful through you. You can't make it up on your own. Authority, you need that as well because you have it if you receive it and walk in it. And the dynamic power, God knows we need that as well and many of us are lacking in that area and that's why we're lacking the boldness and the fortitude to maybe step into some of the things. We don't feel like it. Of course we don't feel like it. Without the power, we won't feel like it. Uh, This is really important. And God wanted you to have both, by the way. The early church had both. They functioned in both. They understood both. And they could not be the priesthood without both. This is important. So here's a great, I love this passage. Again, it's Acts chapter eight. We're gonna read it in sections. We're gonna move through it pretty quickly, but this is really an amazing passage because it couldn't be a better illustration for this power and this authority that we're talking about this morning. Um, So this has to do with Philip. Philip was a a deacon, a servant in the local church. Our church has deacons here who are servant leaders in the church. And uh, Philip, he's a deacon in the church. And he likes to share the faith. So he's serving in the church and he's going out and sharing faith. And that's who he is. And he wasn't called an apostle or anything at this point, but he gets to do some pretty remarkable things. Uh, And so this is what it says starting in verse four. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Again, this is power to the people right in front of us. We see Philip coming up on this town with this profound level of power. Through Philip, God's doing this thing through a regular deacon in the church. A deacon in the church goes to Samaria. He starts preaching the gospel. But he's preaching the gospel with the authority power of God. God gave authority to the believers and commissioned them. Go ye therefore to the ends of the world and and do this thing. So Peter's like, got it. You commissioned me. You gave me power. Scripture gives me authority. I'm walking out in the authority. And he's praying over people, he's praying over people, and some pretty crazy stuff is happening. Now, I would argue that Philip isn't doing it, God's doing it through available people. How many, God does the miraculous, right? God does the miraculous, but, but he's always looking for vessels and, and people to use with their heart in the right zone and place. And so he's praying over people, and people are getting free, and, and things are changing, and the whole town is going, what is going on here? Everyone sees it, everybody gets it, and it's pretty, pretty amazing. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Moving on in verse nine, this guy named Simon. 
And Simon is a sorcerer. Simon is into witchcraft. And Simon is watching all this happen. And he's like, what is this? What is this? I've never seen this in my life. And so this is where it goes, chapter, uh, verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So this guy, Simon, is practicing sorcery. He's doing witchcraft. He's being used by the devil to do these certain magic arts, right? Um, and he boasted, he boasted that he was great. In fact, the term that's used here, people called him the great power of God. Here's what's ironic. The, the literal rendering for that, for his title, people called him the mega dynamite from God. That's the dunamis word. He was the mega dynamite from God. That's what they're calling this guy who's practicing sorcery. The only problem is he wasn't the mega dynamite from God. He was an artificial dynamite from the devil practicing sorcery. So the devil has some limitations and capacities of what he can do, and Simon signed up for it, and Simon was practicing these. He's calling himself the great one. Everyone else is going, wow, he's got mega dynamite. Look at what he's doing. But then... When the people saw Philip, now they've been watching Simon for a long time, but when they saw Philip come to town, the first thing they could tell is the real thing from the fake thing. The first thing they can tell is, <laughs> this is real power, this is real authority, this is truly uh, legitimate, and they believed and they were baptized. This is what's amazing. He's sharing with authority, they're seeing power, they believed and they were baptized. And when Simon saw, even Simon, who's over here doing his hocus pocus and people are gathered around, he sees all the people walk away. He's intrigued. He starts to look into what's going on. He's like, oh my goodness, this is the real thing. Like I'm doing a fabricated version of it over here, a counterfeit. That's the real thing. And even Simon himself, it says, believed and was baptized. Simon knew the power of hell was no match for the power of God. He knew that. He already experienced one of them until he saw the authentic, real thing. And so Simon was so blown away with this power to the people, somehow God-given power to people, he was so blown away with it. The scripture says in verse 13, it's amazing. He followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. So the guy that was doing uh, an artificial version of ma you know, magic sorcery over here sees the real thing. Not only does he believe and get baptized, he's like following Peter everywhere Peter goes. He's like watching everything he does. How's he doing it? How's he? He's just intrigued with all this power in, in Philip's life. And Simon's like tracking him just like a little protege. Like I gotta, I gotta understand this. I gotta get in on what he's doing. This is amazing. So he is floored. Two things I want you to notice really quickly though in this passage. Early believers... Believers in Jesus Christ, we're always baptized right away. This is important because today we go, oh, whatever, I'll get around to it someday. Yeah, I mean, no. They were right away, and that's an important thing. And if you're 
a believer and you haven't been baptized, let us know. We would love to water baptize you. That's a really important step of your obedience. It's, fact, it's in fact the first step of discipleship. When you become a disciple, you, be, you, you say yes, but as a follower, you do what Jesus said. You get water baptized. So if you haven't been, let us know. It's important to do that sooner than later. It's an act of obedience. We don't just like blow it off. Um, and the, uh, the next thing we see right here is not only, and we see this happening a lot in the book of Acts. I'm gonna give you some scriptures to write down in a minute, but not only were people baptized right away, the apostles really wanted to make sure that every believer was water baptized right away, super important. But the other thing the apostles wanted as a major thing is they wanted them not just believing in water baptism, they wanted them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's a topic today that can go two different directions. Like I don't like to hear that topic or I love that and I wanna hear it all the time and what does it mean and who functions in that and which churches have a view on it because this is, this is a topic that can come up and have different views. But I want us to look at what Jesus said about it. I want us to look at what the book of Acts said about it multiple times because this describes, I believe, the priesthood and it's a, it's a key part of the priesthood. To the early apostles, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, was monumentally important. Jesus instructed it, don't leave Jerusalem until you're filled. It was his instruction. And the early church modeled it thoroughly. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 19, the apostle Paul finds a group of believers who believed in Jesus Christ and they were water baptized. And the first thing that we see Paul do is say, I also want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're gonna see in a minute, this is not about people having the Spirit or not having the Spirit. That's a really, whoever came up with that, that was a very dumb, every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit, period. You're not halfway saved. Or if, you're, if you turn and follow Jesus, then you have heaven and you have the Holy Spirit. That's a fact. But there's a difference between having the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, and we see this in the Bible. Paul in Acts 9, 19 says, to these believers who already were water baptized, but I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And he lays hands on them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were all changed. This doesn't happen one time in, in, in Acts. It's, there's like five, six times where we see believers going, good, you're believers, be filled with the Spirit also. And we see this, why is this a big deal? Because in the economy of God, you and I need the power to the people. There needs to be power to the people. And this is a remarkable fact that God designed this baptism. This, it's not a water baptism. It's a, it's a baptism of the Spirit of God coming upon his people to give power to do the things that simply you and I can't pull off. And so here's another one. And the reason this has happened so that we could declare the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into this glorious light. This is what it's for. This is what it does. And so this moves on in verse 14 with... with uh, this passage right here, and it just shows us what a priority it was for people who said yes to Jesus, believed, and were baptized, and are saved, and are sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is true of all believers, the Bible tells us. But we see the priority of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, it's a priority. This is no joke, and I, I hope we look at the priesthood this way. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem, way back in Jerusalem, they're up in Samaria, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. 
They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. So the apostles heard that the Samaritans accepted the word of God, the gospel message. Um, they heard that they accepted Christ. They heard that they were water baptized. They heard that they were saved. That's remarkable. So they were clearly sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is true of all believers. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, saying all believers are sealed with the Spirit. If you've said yes to Jesus, you are sealed with the Spirit. It's true of all believers. This is not a have and have not camp. And anybody who says it that way, it's fundamentally wrong. Everyone has the Holy Spirit who said yes to Jesus. But the Bible uses different words about being sealed or having the Spirit or being filled or baptized. It's a different word in the Greek and it's a different action in Scripture. And the apostles are like, we know they're saved and we know they're baptized and we know they're sealed, but we want them filled and it's such a priority to us that we are leaving Jerusalem to go up there to see what happened, but essentially to empower these people to be part of this profound priesthood. They wanted them filled with the Spirit, and here's why. They wanted them filled with the Spirit for the same reason God wants you filled with the Spirit and me filled with the Spirit. When you get filled with the Spirit, it turns the messenger into the message. It turns the message into the messenger. You can believe it, but does it come out of you? Well, not really, but I believe it. Exactly, exactly. But when you get filled with the Spirit, the message comes out of you. It turns the message into the messenger. It turns the messenger into the message. You, you begin to represent. You begin to live and, and the things of God begin to exist, not because you're better than anybody or anything. It's just because God is allowed to do a greater work where you're saying, God, I'm willing to say less of me and more of you. God's like beautiful qualifier. This baptism, I will tell you, it's not a water baptism. It comes to the laying on of hands. It's a baptism of service. Everyone say baptism of service. That's what it is. This was for people. It wasn't for people going, yeah, let me check it out. Maybe it feels cool. Mm -mm. This had to do with people saying, God, I am willing for you to turn the message into the messenger. I'm willing to be one of those people. Beautiful, beautiful. If that's you, then wait in the upper room and you will be filled and you will become the messengers. And everywhere they went when people were getting saved and coming to faith, they're like, we want you to be empowered to be the messenger. And we see this thing come up about we want them filled with the Spirit. So the fourth point this morning is this. Getting filled with the Spirit's power turns the message into the messenger. That's what it does. I'm not making this up. It's in Scripture. It comes up over and over and over and over again. And so anybody, I would just say this, and I say this with a biblical confidence. Anybody who has a different view on this, I believe they're saying, oh yeah, but that died in some year. And they're trying to pick some year where they think this baptism or filling the Spirit died. And the Bible never said this would die. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, okay? Um, God, and God says his gifts and his calling are irrevocable. He doesn't give them and yank them back. Uh, this is what the Bible says about the nature of God. Um, and the Bible talks about the things of the Spirit being in existence until we finally see Jesus face to face. That's the promise. When you see Jesus face to face, you won't need any of the spiritual power stuff because you're gonna be a new creation completely. But the point is this. This was by God's design to turn the message into the messenger. And that's really the point. We can't be the priesthood without it. And so it's sad to me when people discount this and go, that's a bunch of nonsense. They have really no scriptural authority. I'm sorry to make that thing. 
And then some, I will say sadly, and I want to apologize, some who stampede with it because they make their whole life about this and they miss out on the gospel and they miss out on character and they miss out on all kinds of other aspects of discipleship. They just run like a stampede with it. And it's like, that's not fair either. But the point of the matter is this, if we're gospel-centered people, if we're historic Christ followers, then you and I are not exempt from either one of these powers, either the authority power or the dunamis power of God. We're not exempt. And we will never be the priesthood without both, not one, both. And we'll never step into, we'll never have the messenger turn into the message. It won't happen without without both. And that's why it's really important because it gives us this authority and boldness that we all uh, need for God to dynamically move through you. That's what the apostles wanted That's why the apostles left Jerusalem to go to Samaria. That's why the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans and baptized them in the Holy Spirit. That's why God smiled on their intents and their prayer and their request. That's why God filled the Samaritans with the Holy Spirit. And that's why Samaria would never be the same again because he got a whole city filled with priests. You see how that happened? This is profound. There's a big fundamental shift. Um, now, something I need to mention, and I don't, some of you, if you want to look into this more, I encourage you to write a couple things down, because some of you are like, yeah, I already get this, Pastor B, I, I understand that, and I get it. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm not really sure about this whole baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. I'm, I don't know where it fits. I want to ask you to write some things down, because we're going to pray for some people next week. We're going to pray for those who want this baptism of service, who really want to go, God, I want to decrease so you can increase. I, I believe in you. I believe in you. But I want to say, I'm not my own anymore. I've been bought with a price. I'm yours, and you can use me the way you want. This is who it's for. It's not just for, "Eh, let's give it a shot, see what it feels like. Maybe it feels good. That's not what this is. This is people like in the upper room going, God, we are praying because we want to be, the message wants to be part of the messenger, God, and we want you to change us, and we want that kind of dunamis power. That's what it's for. It's a baptism of service. And if you're willing to receive a baptism of service, then I would say, Uh, these are some scriptures I encourage you to write down and you can look these up um, because in the Bible, this comes up again and again and again about this baptism. Okay, so Acts chapter two, Acts chapter five, read the whole chapter in its context, you get a good understanding. Acts chapter two, Acts chapter five, Acts chapter eight, which we're in today, Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, All expressions of being filled with the Spirit of God, different times, people, places, things, where God fundamentally changed and turned things around, where there's an impartation of the power of God. It's not a one-time thing on the day of Acts that we keep trying to bring up and spread out somehow without authority. This is something throughout church history that God wanted us to know and to understand. And I will say many times, but not all the time. This is important because some focus on Instead of the filling with powerful boldness, some focus on manifestations. And I think this is where we go wrong. Jesus didn't say, focus on the manifestations. Sign up for power so that God can move through you. That's the point. There may be manifestations, there may not be. In in, in scripture, some of them have some manifestations explained. Some passages don't. So we can't make it about, we have to make it about the giver of the gift, right? Rather than the gift itself, amen? We gotta focus on the giver. We gotta focus on what he's doing rather than the manifestations. But in some of these, but not all, I will say there are some descriptions of things that happened. Um, And there's a sound of wind, 
Sometimes it seemed like tongues of fire, it says in Acts, not that it was a real fire, but they're like, I don't know what that is. So there was some kind of phenomena. Uh, in one, one context, it said God's presence shook the place. There was literally like, wow, we're praying and God's moving, but I, what just happened, I don't really know. So this isn't about the manifestations, but the Bible does record manifestations in all of these stories throughout. Sometimes there was a spiritual language. Sometimes there was prophecy, which the Bible says every one of you should desire prophecy. That's a command in scripture. You should desire prophecy to speak the heart of God. Uh, prophecy was a manifestation. Praising God, where people who were quiet just start going, oh God, you're so good. Did I say that out loud? People that were quiet, all of a sudden, this is a manifestation of being filled with the Spirit. Uh, speaking the word of God with a fresh new boldness. These are all the manifestations of being filled with the Holy Spirit throughout scripture uh, that are recorded. But the focus is on the giver of the gift, not the manifestation. And the evidence, the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a fresh boldness. That is the number one evidence. Don't make it about another evidence. There's some that'll make it about this evidence or that evidence. And if you don't have this evidence, you don't have it. I, I think that's narrow-minded because Scripture doesn't say this in every situation. So we can't come to a, you know, these kind of hard-line conclusions. But one thing that it's for, according to Jesus... Don't go anywhere till you receive the filling of the Spirit. You need power. You need power to go and represent me. That's what he said. That was the intention of it. That's what we saw happen in the book of Acts. That's why they keep laying hands on people to receive, so they will have the boldness. And, and that, is the, the, that is the number one evidence, is the boldness to testify. And in my life, as a believer, I remember the same thing happening to me. I believed in Jesus, but I was very shy. I was very timid about my faith. I didn't share my faith. My faith was very personal to me. And it was, if you want to ask me a question, I might tell you, but we're going to talk kind of quietly over here. Um, and it was like that. I was not loud or anything about my faith, but I remember the day I church that I went to at the time on the West side said, listen, there's a baptism of service and the spirit can fill you. It's not for feeling, it's for boldness. And if you want this baptism of service, here are scriptures you can read. You can check the word of God yourself. You can pray yourself. And if you want this, prepare your heart, get ready to make more room for God. And I would say the, the criteria is, God, I'm willing to decrease so that you can increase in my life. And that, that's the plausible, uh, I, I think the prerequisite, I should say, for being filled with the spirit. And I did that. And I remember this day on the west side. I go, here goes. And I remember I... I got prayed over, and, and I can just tell you, and I don't want to get into the manifestations because everyone might have a different read on what happened, but I can tell you God filled me that day with his spirit. It was a remarkable day. It was probably the most beautiful day in my life that I can describe, except for the day I got married to Christy, of course. Uh, uh, but it was remarkable. It was amazing, and I went from like, God, what are, you, what are you doing to me right now? And I don't want to focus on the manifestation because it's not about a feeling. It's about a willingness to serve God. But that very day, I went from a guy who was so quiet about my faith and so timid and so shy. I wanted to share it. I just didn't have it in me. I just didn't, wasn't my style. Faith is a personal thing. And I went that day and sat on this hill over by Lake Balboa with my guitar and I started singing out praises to God at the top of my lungs and I could care less what anybody thought. It was a new thing in me. It wasn't obnoxious or weird. It was a holy boldness flowing out of me. I didn't make it up. Nobody psyched me out. Nobody told me some cool motivational speech. It was none of the above. It was the power of God, just like scripture says, to help me testify about the one who called me out of darkness into this marvelous light. 
That's what the priesthood is for. And that's what it did. And when, you're, when your experience lines up with the experiences of Scripture, that's the kind of experience you should want. Not some random experience. When your experience is the same one that's in Scripture, that's the one you want. And you should want every experience in Scripture because God has it uh, for his people. So we're going to wrap this up really quick if the worship team can come on up. Um, so Simon, back to Simon. I've got to wrap it up with Simon because Simon is like this character right in the middle of the story. Simon saw something. Not only did he see Philip, this regular guy who's got this authority and God's moving in his life with power and he's so intrigued, he becomes a believer. He's following him everywhere he goes. He's blown away with what he sees. Now the apostles come down and they lay hands on all these Samaritans and they get filled with the Spirit. And it doesn't say what it looked like. Here's a perfect example of, it doesn't say any manifestation of what it looked like. But it did look like something because it says right here that when the people were baptized with the Holy Spirit, Simon saw something. He's like, would you look at that? And this is where it goes in verse 18. When Simon saw, everyone say saw. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Ouch. Through the laying on a hand, Simon saw something profound. He saw that the Spirit was given. That's what the Bible says. There was something to see. I don't know what he saw, but there was something that he's like, whoa, what is that? That is so cool. So he saw something change. I know when I was filled with the Spirit, something changed. It was remarkable. It was noteworthy. I believe in your life, if you're filled with the Spirit or have been before, it's noteworthy whether there's an outward manifestation or not. There's some kind of change to see, even if it's in the matter of boldness. And sadly, he says, can I buy that? Can I buy that? What do you want to buy, Simon? Well, I want to buy that, that ability, that ability. Like they came down and they did this thing and prayed and people, I want to buy that. And he is sadly falling right back into, his, how many know it's easy to fall back into the old ways, right? It's, it's so easy to fall back into the old ways, even for a new believer like him. Um, Simon's having a pop quiz, and he's failing the pop quiz right now. He's falling back into the old ways. He wanted to be the mega power of God again, like he used to be for the devil, and now he's in the church, and now he's a believer, and now he's been baptized, and now he's seeing this, and goes, I want to buy that, because I want people to look at me the way they look at the apostles. I want to be able to impart that. And he thought this power could be purchased. Here's our last uh, two, two points. Fifth point is this. The power of God is priceless, yet it is freely given. It's priceless. You can't put a price on this. It's, you can't quantify the value of the gifts of God. You can't even quantify them. And yet, at the same time, they're freely given. And that is grace by definition. It's like, wow, really, God? Seriously? You don't deserve that? Don't, can't buy it? Can't earn it? It's like, but here you go anyway. It's priceless, but it's freely given. And then it says this in verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart, your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart, for I see that you were full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answers, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So the priesthood is for all believers, including Simon. It's 
for all believers, including Simon. But Simon, Simon was, he was abusing the priesthood. And you, you never want to abuse the priesthood. The priesthood has to be handled with a humble and a contrite heart. Heart condition is everything to the priesthood. Heart condition is everything to the priesthood. And Simon is abusing the priesthood. And he wants to buy power. He wants to be seen as powerful, which is the opposite of why God grants power. Priesthood is supposed to say, don't look at me, look at him. Amen? This is what priesthood does. Don't look at me. Look at him. Priesthood says like John the Baptist, I must decrease so that he can increase. This is priesthood, guys. And Simon's like, I want to buy it so people will look at me the way they look at them. And, and Peter is telling him, Simon, I know you're new. <laughs> you're a newbie to this faith, but let me just tell you something. You're going to wreck everything about the priesthood if you look at it that way. It's about a heart condition, my friend. And you'll never function in the power of God or be effective in your priesthood if you have that kind of heart condition. So guess what he says? Change it. Change it. Turn around. Make a U-turn. Turn around. Change your way of thinking and change the way you're acting because there's a great priesthood ahead for you, Simon, if you go this way. But if you go that way, you're going to have no part of the priesthood. So the last point for all of us, and I believe it's a heart check as a qualifier, is this. Keep your heart in the right place in order to function in God's power. To function in God's power. God is looking for hearts. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth looking for hearts, looking for hearts that are completely his so we can strongly support them. God's looking for hearts. He always has looked for hearts. He always will look for hearts. And hearts that are in the right place, he's willing to pour out power, authority, and dunamis through people who say less of me and more of you. Beautiful. But when we want to be seen and we want to be known and we want to be elevated, we, that's the disqualifier. It puts our heart in the wrong zone and we don't qualify as a conduit for the power of God. And so that's a, that's a reality. There's this amazing power to the people that God has for you and I. But the heart check in the meantime, make sure your heart's in the right zone for it. So I want to close in prayer right now. I want to ask you guys to join me. Would you guys stand to your feet, please? Um, mighty God, we, we come before you this morning, God. Um, your word is rich. You've got so much insight and revelation and uh, instruction, and you've got so much history and so much uh, insight to show us, God, about the way you work, about your ways, about the world's ways, about, uh, about structure, about power, about what it means and what it doesn't. Uh, and clearly you're telling us today that power to the people is your idea. Uh, for sons and daughters who say yes to you, Jesus, uh, we enter into this priesthood. That's what you call us. You tell us to represent you to people, to, to share you. Uh, not that they would look at us, but they would look at you. But God, you, you expect us and desire us to be ambassadors, to represent you. But you don't just send us out there and say, give it a shot. You don't just send us out there and say, uh, use whatever capacities you might happen to have naturally. Uh, you say, I'm willing to pour out my power and authority in your life so you can represent. In fact, you even say, don't go out there until you have power. Don't even go public yet because you're going to need the power and the authority. And we are not people to come along 2,000 years later and say, God, we are exempt from your order. We are exempt from your ways. We are exempt from your methods, God. So this morning, we say, God, we want what you want for us, Lord. 
We want what you want for us. I pray for every one of us in this room that today we would make a decision to step into the priesthood that you say we belong in, God. We wouldn't fight you about the priesthood. We wouldn't argue with you about the priesthood, God. If you have power for us, we want it. If you have authority, we want it. If we have to decrease so that you can increase, God willing, we want it, God. And I just pray all of us would camp out on the magnitude of what this means and what the qualifiers are to receive your power and love that we too might prepare our hearts and be ready. And for those who are ready, we'll come back next week and, and say, Lord, I want that. And just pray, Lord, for you to move the way you did in scripture. I also pray, Lord, if any have not been water baptized as an adult in this room, I don't mean as an infant when we didn't know what we were doing, but as a, old enough to understand what it is, uh, that we would take that step of obedience very soon, even this week too. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. amen. This has been a presentation of Valley Metro Church. To hear more messages or to support future podcasts, please visit us at valleymetrochurch.com.